Baseball season's almost here, and there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site, where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitment. Every time you play, it's like a new season. Head to DraftKings.com now and use code ATHLETE to play for free in the opening day $100,000 fantasy baseball contest. First place takes home ten grand. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. There is nothing but the moment. Don't you waste it on regret. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I first met Seth Meyers in 2007 on the strike line for the Writers Guild. And a lot of guys like Seth, a lot of famous guys, they would show up, they would make a big sort of show of bringing coffee and donuts to the writers, the camera crews would come, and then the second the camera crews would go away, the famous guys would go away too, not Seth. Seth was there every single day, marching with the writers. He is uh, a real person in a business that rarely rewards real people. So it's really great that he's agreed to be here. I'm new to this and uh, a little bit nervous, honestly. As And it's interesting to me to have Seth as my guest because I'm nervous uh, recording a podcast where, you know, worst comes to worst, Bill Simmons and Jacoby will sit me down and say, uh, sorry, man, we're not putting this out there. And Seth's got to get up in a couple of weeks and talk to the whole country uh, and uh, with everyone watching really closely. But uh, being new to this, I hope you'll stick with me. Uh, I hope you'll forgive whatever rookie mistakes I make probably rambling like this in the beginning is one of them. But uh, I'm really excited about this. Really glad I'm going to get to be uh, sitting down with Seth Myers. And, uh, oh, I think he's uh, he's coming in now. So uh, in a second, I'll be talking to you with Seth. Thanks. So uh, I'm here with Seth now. Um, so, you know, I remember once we were having lunch, you and I, and uh, – I asked you why you didn't do certain podcasts. I won't say which ones. Uh-huh. And do you remember you said to me uh, that you didn't really want to get into heavy emotional terrain? Yeah, I just didn't. That was work I personally didn't want to do. You know, it's not that it wasn't the host's fault. It was like I didn't want to go in my own head like that. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, because why would you want to reveal yourself in that way? Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's other places to do it. Right. Yeah. And and that's what's so honestly great about you because you are such a trusting person that I asked you to do this show and you <laughs> you never said you'd never go what what's the show about? You were right. just like, sure, I'd love love to come do your show. Well, yeah, because we'd had that conversation where I told you why I didn't do certain podcasts. I assumed you would jump to the conclusion. Right. And the fact that you have that level of faith. Uh, you know, I intend uh to make you pay for that because right, perfect. you are sort of one of the only people in the business of show, the people constantly say, you know, uh, you're good to your word, you're a kind guy. And um, I'm going to, for the Grantland audience, take advantage of I that. love it. Cool? I'm looking forward to this. Are now. we good? Yes. All right. So the this is the first episode of the show. And um, the idea, it's called The Moment. And the idea of the show is that I am fascinated by inflection points in people's lives. Like those moments, good or bad, when everything shifts and everything's on the table and it could all go one way or another. And, you know, how do you move forward? How do you triumph? What inner resources do you have to muster to go on? And, um, you know, in life, 
at lunch, I'd never ask you this stuff, but somehow with a microphone and this and this platform, there's a different kind of intimacy. So uh, here's the thing, you know, like if I had Bill Clinton on, I'd ask him what happened after he lost the Arkansas governor's race, okay? Because he was, right. you know, mm-hmm. uh, and if I had Mickelson on, Phil Mickelson, I'd ask him, what, you know, after he blew up at the 2006 U.S. Open, how did he figure it out? But to me, you know, amazing moments are portentous, also, and like this for you right now. I mean, you were on the, I mean, you were on the cover of Time. Yeah, that was pretty dumb. Magazine. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you just go right to dumb, right to self-effacing. But even Springsteen, here's the thing. Even Bruce Springsteen famously melted down when he was on the cover of Time and Newsweek. But so what did it truly, what did it feel like? And then how did, what did you tell yourself other than it's dumb to be able to kind of get out of bed and do your thing without feeling like, holy sh, you know, this is falling on top of me? Well, I feel like I'm pretty good at unpacking exactly what happened. And the reality it is, it wasn't like I was on the cover of Time the way Springsteen was, where it was like, this is the king of rock and roll. It was like a preview issue. It was like previewing the next year, and I was like one of the things that's happening in the next year. So it was more um, looking forward as far as like looking back on my career. You know, it wasn't like, those are the ones that I think probably are a little bit harder to take. Or like, you know, because it, it's like, no, no one was like calling me the king of comedy or anything like that. Uh <laughs> And also, I, you know, it's very easy for me to sort of be self-facing about it because I am lucky to have uh, a facing people in my life. One of my friends was like, I've known so many people on the cover of Time, but all of them had it done at their bar mitzvah. <laughs> um, right. Who who said that? That's a good line. That was my, that's just one of my college friends, Mike Lazaro, said that one. But also a great thing, another great, a facing thing about it was, you know, I lived in Amsterdam for a couple of years and I, of course, told my friends over there, like, hey, I'm on the cover of Time magazine, but the European edition of Time just has 2014. <laughs> like, they would rather just have the year. Is that true? Yeah, You're that's only, true. I'm only, only on, on the America. US edition. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was great. I, and this is all going to sound so uh, much like I'm running away from it, but it's such a tribute to this uh, woman I worked with for years, Lauren Roseman, who's the publicist that SNL, like, you know, for her, that's like a bigger accomplishment for her than me that she found. Well, I mean, that's a really good insight into yourself. The fact that you're on the, you've now said about six different reasons why it had nothing to do with you or what you've accomplished <laughs> or who you are. I mean, she's got other clients. She probably represents some chefs. Right. You know, are they on the <laughs> right? Or someone else. But I'm saying, so that's what your, your strategy, your, and maybe, Maybe it's not even this is what I ask you. Is it a strategy in your mind? Like, are you conscious of protecting the part of yourself that is creative that you like from the rest of this stuff? Or is it not conscious? I don't think it's conscious. I think it's conscious to, like, make sure you don't get inflated. I don't know how you can go about doing comedy. Because comedy, even when you're really good at it, it doesn't work half the time. So you can't be like, oh, I'm on the cover of time. I figured this out. Because it's not like be doing my job gets any easier and uh so i think that's like a very self-conscious thing to like remember that like you know time magazine is on the newsstands for a week and then it's off the newsstands and then you have to you know keep doing your job and the same way you've always been doing it right so in a way in a way the fact that sometimes jokes bomb offers a kind of insulation on both sides of it absolutely like by the way, I should stress, because I feel like I've, I've been running from his heart. Like, when I heard, when 
I got the call that I was going to be on the cover of Time magazine. I was very excited, and I got, like, goosebumps, and it made me, like, I had a very emotional moment when I heard that. Good. I just moved on. Did you, like, do an Urkel dance or anything? I didn't. I'm not, like, an, I'm not like a dance celebratory person, but I am someone who can, like, tear up pretty easily. And I was like, oh, this is mostly just when you hear your, something like that happens. Like, you instantly sort of think of your parents. Right. And yes. the fact that they get Time magazine is that, that moment for me was the most exciting part of it. Did you call them? I did. Like, calling your parents and telling them you're going to be on the cover of Time magazine was not a thing, like, I could do without, like, a bit of a catch in my throat. Right. So you allowed... That's awesome. So you did... You allowed yourself... You're very... I mean, it's a really interesting thing. You're, like, very healthy for somebody in the... You're emotionally... You're kind of emotionally intact for somebody who's in the comedy game. I did... I did very well by my parents. Like, or I should say I was done very well by my parents. Like, they were great people... Uh, my brother's still my best friend. I grew up with good people. I went to college with the guys I'm still friends with. The hardest time I had in my life was the first, like, I would say the first five-year period I was on SNL. Wow. That was the bumpiest time emotionally I ever had. Because Just of the because haircuts? The haircuts were pretty bad. Yeah. But mostly for me, it was like I didn't feel like I quite belonged. Like, that was the one time, the first time in my life where, and because, you know, again, like, you're very lucky if that you feel you don't belong for the first time when you're 27. Um, but that was, uh, I was just a little unprepared for that. So that was like the first time you had like, like what people would call the imposter, like complex Absolutely. or whatever. You felt like, oh, when are they going to take all this away from me? Almost immediately. And they should. And they should. And they wouldn't even be wrong to. There, I remember times like going home from like after parties. And again, like, you know, when you go home from an after after party at five in the morning, you're going to have some dark thoughts no matter what they are. <laughs> but those were thoughts I would have all the time, which is like, you know, enjoy this time because this is not uh, this is not long. This will not go on for long. But with that said, you know, again, you even in those dark times, like I was incredibly lucky. You know, I started at the show with Amy Poehler, who's still one of my best friends. Uh, Mike Shoemaker was a producer on the show who's now going to run Late Night with Seth Meyers uh, was there. for You know, so I was always lucky with the people that I had for times like that. Right. And Late Night with Seth Meyers, which is February 24th. 24th. This yeah. weekend is your last. Uh, yeah, we're two days away. SNL. How does it feel right now? It's a. Uh, crazy it's crazy feeling this whole week just constantly like ticking off the boxes of this was the last time this is the last pitch this is the last table read after this i'm gonna go to my last uh rewrite table which is probably my favorite day of the show you just sit around with you know at a table with eight writers and you go through all the sketches and make them better and it's just like the sort of uh laziest day in that you sort of have a lot of work to do but there's so many tangents so many side conversations so much laughing yeah it's those it's funny the little moments in creating things in a a group i mean one of the great things about making movies too is it's great when you're shooting yeah but there are all and there and but there are these moments along the way like um the first for me it's like the first time i'm in a van to scout Scouting is horrible. It's the, you know, you oh. 10 hours a day of looking, uh, you know, you have to shoot in a laundromat. I, mean, I don't know how, how aware even in this sort of like savvy age people are of the fact that you're looking at 25 laundromats right. and, you know, you fall in love with one laundromat and then that owner wants to charge you too much. So you're stuck at the crappy laundromat across town. But, you know, I, I make movies, my partner, you know, well, mm-hmm. uh, I make movies with Dave, David Levine and I, every time we first get in that van, it feels like magic. Yeah. And so I'm sure that thing for you, uh, the special magic that is SNL. I, yesterday around 
you know, I sleep at work on Tuesday nights. So I had my last night, like, sleeping on a couch with a terrible little blanket. And again, I'm 40 years old. This is not what you're supposed to be doing when you're 40. And Polar said it'll be an emotional night, but try to remember. Okay, can I just say one thing, though? I mean, honestly, when you talk about and I'm, I think that I, I think that this is a perception that's shared by people. When you talk about, like, the after-after party and stumbling back in, you know, the only thing I think you're doing is drinking Yoo-Hoo. Right. I mean... <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I don't think your story is Farley's story. Exactly. No. Well, I. You know, I'm sure very had... few were. With that said, you know, my first seven years on the show, I hit it really hard. Right. That was great. I mean, again, it was a whole. It like reset you back ten years. Like I got to have a second youth. You know, I was 27, and I got to move to New York City and be on Saturday Night Live. Like it was. Yeah, I felt like 17 again. You know? Right. Or at the yeah. very least 21, I should say. Right, um, yeah. Totally a life-changing thing. Now, you haven't really done the full WTF experience. So have you You haven't told, I think, the whole how you got SNL on a podcast. Yeah, I probably just like the, the broad strokes. But um, You were doing improv. Doing improv. I finished college. I had went to Northwestern. And I'd, I'd been on the improv troupe there. I'd kind of fallen in love with it. I'd studied improv and started doing shows at IO, which is this place right next to Wrigley Field. And that a lot of the Chicago people uh, on SNL had done. Never did Second City. Auditioned for it. Didn't get it. And then there were these guys from Chicago, Northwestern guys, had started this theater in Amsterdam called Boom Chicago. Right. And I auditioned for that and moved out to Amsterdam April 97. So, I guess I'm like 23 then, I guess. Yeah. 23, 24, which was... The best. I mean, living in Amsterdam for two years when you're 23, working as an improv comedian, was about as good as... I mean, I spent one week in Amsterdam once when I was 20, the summer after college. Yeah. And I mean, if I would have stayed for two weeks, I think I might never have left, and I'd also be dead. Yeah, we learned pretty fast. We spent the first month there, all of us that got that job, like it was a three-day weekend, and then we kind of realized, no, we live here. We have to be like citizens of this place. This is one of... This gets us right back to the Yoo-Hoo story, which is the idea that... That for yes, I'm sure that you partied hard uh, during those years, but it wasn't like Iggy Pop time. No, also I'm a control freak, right? So that's always been a part of that that element of it. Yeah, sure, that makes total sense. And and uh, you got the did you audition? You auditioned here in New York. Well, yeah. So I was doing this two person show with this girl I had met in Amsterdam named Jill Benjamin. We were doing in Chicago. This woman Ayala Cohen, who was working for the talent department at the time at SNL, saw us. Asked for a tape. I sent in a tape. Six months later, she asked for a second tape. I sent that tape in. And then about six months after that, they called me into New York for an audition. So I came here. Now we're talking like, I guess, June 2001, uh, do my audition for SNL. Right. Five-minute audition on the monologue spot at home base. And it finishes, I feel, as though I've done as good a job as I could do, which was great. I kind of walked off knowing at the very best... I should say, at the very worst, I would never regret it, and which was good. So, but here, here the moment I'm interested in, in that is right beforehand, like you're flying here, yeah. right? So you're flying here. I can't imagine. I mean, I remember basketball tryouts in high school. Mm-hmm. I'd be up for three days. Uh, and, you know, I did for a year and a half, I did stand up in New York. And I remember that you wouldn't exactly throw up, but you'd really want to throw up. I mean, you're flying here to do SNL. Uh, audition for Lorne Michaels. What 
what is going on inside of you? And do you do you remember do you remember it? I remember it's funny. I remember that so much more than I remember a lot of the first five years once I was on the show. Sure, because that was such. Not to pull it back, but that was the moment of like, yeah, you have this audition. I had about two weeks time to get ready for it. They had sort of given the instruction, which was they've sort of said this uses a guide. This isn't specifically what it has to be, but three impressions, three characters, about five minutes, which I took like it was like I took it like the hard, fast rules. Right. I was like, I'm going to do That's that. That's what you're going to do. I'll just yeah. do three and three. I wasn't an impressionist, and I didn't have characters. Perfect. So, so you're set up I just to succeed. Had to go to work, and that yeah. was where being a writer came in handy. Because instead of trying to, I kind of picked like almost the bit first, and then the impression second, if that made sense. Oh yeah, sure. So you wrote, and you, obviously, yeah. then you had an idea that you could. Yeah, I was do. like, I think I could do. You know, I had an idea that I thought I could do Russell Crowe, and so That's I wrote funny. Russell Crowe as a late night talk show host. Right. And it was a lot of jokes bombing and him did, asking the audience if they were entertained. Did you, did you ever do that on the show? No, we tried it once, and it was one of those things which I now understand so much better sort of being more closer to Lauren's side than the other side, which is you can't do an impression of a person if you can't look anything like them. I guess it's hard. And my head, as Lauren pointed out, is half the size of Russell Crowe's head. I have, like, a narrow face, <laughs> well, and he yeah. has, like, a statue's head. Well, no, so, but uh, going back to, so you prepared. Prepared for two weeks, like, didn't go out. Right. I was in L.A. at the time. I love that you said you didn't go out. You know, I, I was someone was asking me this question the other day uh, about wanting someone who wanted to become a, an artist of some sort, and I said, "You have no idea the power and the necessity to say no." Like, no, I'm not going to go out. No, I'm not going to date that particular girl. Like, recognizing trouble, and because there's this, you know, everyone, the artist's story, the Rambo sort of like. Uh, Jim Morrison, Hendrix, like you're supposed to burn it fast. The truth is you can do that in success, maybe. Right. But like you did, you shut your light. You basically yes. decided I'm going to be monastic for a little while. Fully monastic, fully never wanted to look back on it and wish I'd worked harder on it. And I knew we were aware of this at how old? 20... 27. So 27, you knew, uh, this is really interesting to me. At 27, you were like, I never want to look back on... You actually had, like, a conscious thought in that way. Very much so. Yes. And that is completely attributable to my father, who I think raised us to feel that way about things. What did he do? He... My dad is just in finance, like, trade finance, but he, as a guy, always sort of pushed you to be your best and just kind of taught you without being he would too with, overbearing with about it that, like, nothing's worse than regretting things. Right. Especially the things that were in your control. So, and how did he? How did he impart? Like, how did he give you that message? Well, I was in high school. I tested really well. I should have done better in high school. Right. It's uh, funny you don't seem that smart. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> but there was actually interesting. Like, high school was a time yes. where I was uh, pretty lazy. My dad. Uh, I just wasn't like I, I. I. You know, this is a thing. Like the things that I've sort of been monastic and committed to have always been the things that I also have a passion for. Sure. I'm not great when it's science class. Right. Uh, Whereas I could have, I could have put the work in there and probably done better as far as just like memorizing, you know, parts of the clam. <laughs> you know, like that. I could have uh, done better with that. Right. So, but he when I got to college, when I got into Northwestern, when I started doing uh, comedy, when I started doing improv stuff, you know, my parents always came out to see shows, and they were really positive with their feedback, and the thing my dad said is just, you know, work as hard at it 
if this is what you want to do, you just have to work as hard as, as you can because everyone wants to do it. So I was also like um, somebody who tested pretty well and didn't do uh, a great deal of work in high school. But and but for me, um, it felt like it was hell in a way, right? Because I felt like um, whatever capabilities I, I have, this is not the forum that they're going to, in which they're going to shine, but this is the way you're being judged now. And so that sort of like dissonance created a lot of, uh, you know, pain. I mean, you, you, my parents are incredibly supportive, too. My dad's a very no, in a way, no-nonsense uh, guy. Um, but it sounds like, like for you, so uh, when you would come home and get just okay, but I, I, here's the thing, like I bombed it a couple of times. Right. I don't think you ever bombed it. I bombed it a couple of times. I bombed it, the worst I bombed it was I got an F in science, yeah. And my, at a school where my mother was I, a teacher. I love that. Oh, that's. I mean, I celebrate that. That's great. But it were it gets worse. I got an F in science, and then I just the day we got our, and again, you the only way you get an F is you just don't do any of the work. Like if right. you just turn in the homework, right. You can't get an F. Were you in high school? This is like I want to say like eighth grade, right? Maybe seven. I think eighth grade. So I get my report card, and I just don't bring it home. Perfect. I just push it off. I procrastinate. Uh, I did the, the same. Pain. I did the same. I can't believe you did it. I did the same thing. And by the way, which it works better if your mom doesn't work at the school. But yeah, but mine, I stole it out of the mailbox. Yeah. So I took mine out of the mailbox, like in a great brain book or something. Yeah. But it's not the great brain who does that. It's the idiot younger brother. Right. Because there's no second move once you take. You take the yeah. grades because it's not like the parents don't talk to any. Or they don't right. know. You've know. been in the school before. They know around about December 15th, the grades are coming. But oh, what did it feel like in your stomach when you had the grades and you pulled them? Well, I pulled them, and then it was just like the clock ticking. It was just oh. like a clock ticking to an execution. Because ultimately what happened is my mom went to that teacher and was like, because I, I had said, oh, my, uh, they're like, why did you get your report card? I'm like, she, Mrs. Kent kept it because she wanted to, she needed to do some. And so my mom went and checked on it and uh, I had this awful feeling. Because then, of course, when your mom says that to another teacher, the other teacher knows your kid lied to you. She came home. And I just remember my dad, like, just standing in our driveway. Yeah. Like, just laying into me about how, what the future would be like if this is how you're uh, going to live your I, life. I, I can't tell you how, how happy your misery makes me because I was in ninth grade. And I remember... Um, well, I had this history teacher, Mrs. Roosevelt, who actually was a Roosevelt. And she was um, a, a miserable woman, and she was an old, older woman. And she would talk very, very loudly and yell at you all the time. And uh, I thought I did really well on one test. I finished. I'd studied hard, I thought. And I took this test, and uh, I finished kind of quickly. And as I was leaving the room, she said, Oh, I suppose you're done with that? You think you... And I go... Oh, yeah, I, I studied. And she goes, well, we'll see. And I leave the class, and I go down to an assembly. And it's all in front of the whole school, an assembly. And suddenly, Mrs. Roosevelt comes walking into the assembly. And she goes, well, I had the time to grade your examination. <laughs> and I said, with a big smile, like, how'd I do? And she said, you failed that sucker flatter than a pancake. <laughs> and, you know, the red in your face. And the whole uh, cafeteria at the assembly staring at me. And so then I felt those weren't grades I needed to bring home at the right. end of that semester. Why share that misery? Absolutely. Why do you pass it on to your parents? Why make them have to suffer? Can't I suffer for all of us? Absolutely. You haven't we cut learned? It off. Haven't we learned anything? Yeah. So my, I was studying it. I figured I would. My plan 
was I would study so hard the next semester that I would, by the time those grades came, so I was at the library on a Saturday. Oh, right, right. And suddenly my my dad was just standing next to me in the library. And I looked up and he said, uh, Brian, when did, uh, when did you get your grades? And I went, a month ago. And he went, that's just terrific. And he just turned around and walked out. Wow. Leaving me. So, yes. So what what happened finally for you? Well, you know, I was lucky enough to get into Northwestern despite sort of going a little bit less than full speed in high school. And getting to Northwestern was a great thing that happened to me. I was just surrounded by really great people, great kids. And uh, also, I was there as a radio TV film major. And so I was finally doing... Yeah, you were into it, doing your thing. But when your dad... What I'm saying, when, when your dad said to you, you know, this is what your life's going to be like, yeah. did anything... Did it register? It did. It, it totally registered. And, you know, the thing that my parents were always great about, which was what made them great parents, is when you did good work, they were so proud of you. They were never not proud of the good work. And that pride meant so much to my brother and I that I think... You know, like, nothing... do you think that led? To, so, you think that led to the fact because you're somebody who clearly, like, you know, you're a smart guy, but clearly, you uh, ascribe most of your success to the hard, to like getting in there and punching, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a grinder. I think. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's you believe, and it's funny. A lot of successful people will there. It kind of falls into a couple of camps, but you know, there's this new theory that grit is the this big study, I guess, by Harvard, that, that the number one factor in success in any endeavor is is grit. Much more than raw IQ, much more than luck. It's sort of like the belief that you have that you're gritty. The belief that... So that's what's... You think that's what's happening with you? I think so. It was funny because, you know, the last... Or Tuesday was the last writing night I ever had at SNL, and I went at it as hard as I could because I, that was another thing. I was like, I don't want to look back at my last week and not have tried my hardest... You mean you're actually trying on the news? Trying. That's what no, we get. No, not on the news. That's what the we get news, when you're... That's, the news that's, I'm on full uh, cruise control. Just like <laughs> sketch writing for the rest of the show. Because that is... You know, I'll still... In my new job, I'll still get to tell jokes. But I won't be able to write sketches. You know what's awesome about... I just want to say what's awesome about you. And, and say, I mean, look, uh, it's much more fun for me to rip on you than say something nice to you. <laughs> but the truth is that, you know, many times over the years, I've texted you or, or emailed you that... Um, Hey, that joke was good on SNL, on the news. And you un- always will be like, oh, yeah, that guy wrote, he wrote a really funny line. Or she set me up great. And it, it, it goes back to the Time Magazine thing. Like, you really love to know and to support that, that it's not just you somehow. And, of course, you want to write sketches for these other people. Right. It is. But, again, as a writer, and you must feel this as well, I mean, I don't feel like... I'm giving them the work as much as I feel like they're giving you the performance. 100%. Yes. You know, and that thing of... And I I feel it more than anyone because when I first started in SNL, I was both the writing and the performance. I would often... When I was just a cast member, I'd write sketches for myself. Right. And I so I know I'm not making it up. I get as much, if not more, from watching someone else say my lines if I think it makes the writing better, which... It almost always does. Uh, yeah, I agree. There's, I mean, you know, um, like we we're talking about being in the van. I mean, the first time when you see somebody um, really giving life to something that you've written, it is mind-boggling how much better they can make it and how then it ha- has a has a life and can live. 
but also there's just something in you and I, it, it's weird um there's something in you as you're even taking this mantle on now um of still not wanting to like you know Johnny Carson who I grew up loving as I'm sure y- you did you know, the only time he'd mentioned the writers is when they wrote a clam. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And whereas I think a joke that didn't work, I could not imagine you saying, oh, Shoemaker wrote that line. Except yeah. maybe to your friends. Well, a lot of that has to do with still identifying as a writer. Yes. You know, the idea that the person who's out there getting the glory would only want to bring you up when right. you didn't fully give them that glory. Again, like I know the dark rooms and the dark corners in which the writers at SNL spend their time. Yes. Before, I mean, before you came in here, I introed this, and I said, um, you know, you're one of the only famous writers who actually came to the writer's strike, not just to make a grand gesture, but, I mean, you marched with us. Yeah. And and for you, that was a very freighted thing, not just because because of what it meant in terms of where you were going in the corporate structure there, but, you know, I mean, you probably were dealing with 100 guys whose whole goal that day, instead of striking, was to get your phone number. Yeah. That was a really... That's a really special time for me for a lot of reasons. Like, one, that it ended. That was great. You can that look back ended. at the fact yes. that it ended. Um, to you know, we met there. Yes. I met a lot of people there. Yes. And also, you know, it was really great for me because before that time, like, I didn't know the Daily Show guys, the Colbert guys that well. Right. You know, there it's so weird because we're all so... We're all very similar, yet we work at very different shows, and it was nice to sort of get to know them. It was a, re- I mean, again, like, uh, it's not a mistake that solidarity is a word that is used with things like strikes. No, for sure. It did create that thing. But w- for you, were you, was it conscious, like, I'm going to go do this, or did it just feel like, um, this is my tribe? This is my tribe. And that's what you still feel like this is your Absolutely. tribe. Absolutely. And the, one of the scariest things about this new job is, I will be less a part of the writing staff. I will be the host of this show. Well, so how's it going to have your voice? Um, you know, certainly the first way it has your voice is the people you hire. You know, right. you meet with people and you feel like they can write to your voice. Well, at the same time, you also want to hire people that are unique and different. You know, we want to try to find ways on our show to have people out there next to me in the way that on Weekend Update you have guests come out. Right. Um, but it... Can, will you do any of the same, any of the characters from I don't SNL? think we'll do any of the same characters. None? None. Maybe, like, there'll be a visit every now and then. Jean K. John? Jean K. John, I think, belongs to SNL. I would not, <laughs> I would not want to take him away. But the part Though of this Zuda new Lore job, wouldn't be a bad sign-off for you. It would not be. A, honestly, at yeah. the end of every night, a quick Zuda Lore. Yes. Jean K. John, uh, this is a total side story, but we did a strike show at UCB during the strike. Yes. Where we did a lot of unproduced uh, Weekend Update characters and sketches. And Jean K. John was born in the strike show. I He's love the that. one character that's like survived. It's like when every now and then you hear like one of the players in the NFL strike <laughs> stuck around. Yeah. They like, oh, Jean K. John lived somehow. Yeah, yeah, Jean Even though you guys came up scam. with it like 6 o'clock before the <laughs> yeah. 7 o'clock thing. No, but you were saying the show, so how it has your... This is where I'm really happy I did Update, because yes. Update is a thing like Late Night that's been around for a long time that very few people have done that has a legacy to it. And when I got Update, I spent a lot of time before I did my first one being like, how am I going to make it my own? How am I going to do it differently? What am I going to bring to it? And all these things. And when I started doing it, I realized that like you don't get a job like Update or Late Night unless you already have a style. And you don't get a job like that unless you already 
have the ability to do it. So what you really need to do is just facilitate bringing yourself to it in the best possible way, as opposed to, which is great, and it's a relief to be like, this is a new business. Right. This isn't about figuring out, like, what's late night Seth Meyers going to be? It's going to be late night with Seth Meyers. It's exactly going to be what it is. It's going to be late night. It's going to be on at 1230. Right. It's like when Sinatra walks into this studio and they give him, uh, you know, on for Grantland's audience, uh, Frank Sinatra was a singer. Yes. Very famous in the very 50s famous and one. 60s, primarily, 40s even. Yeah. Uh, he's been dead a while. He was but in some movies. guys in their 40s like us, he's a cultural signifier. He's a big deal. So uh, I guess who would I say? To, when Timberlake walks into his studio yeah. now or Usher. Um, no, but, you know, they would say, here's the charts. This is the thing. And it still came out sounding like right. Sinatra. So you feel like, and, and I guess Mike, you feel like Mike knows your. Mike knows me. Alex Bays, who is running Weekend Update for the last five or six years. Best joke writer in the world. Right. He's coming with me. So we have a nice start of people that sort of know my voice and know my taste. And the ones that don't are going to lo- learn it soon uh, soon enough. And that makes total sense to me. Um, something else that I'm sort of interested in, because you are a writer who then took all this stuff on, is, and as you talk about how, what your childhood was like, was did you conceive of this idea that someday I'm going to be in leadership positions? I did not. But... My dad has been. Right. And mine he, too. And he was sort of out here. You know, he's he's always sort of Have you brought him in counsel. to you brought him in to help? He's your Tom Hagen? He sort of is my Hagen, but it's, he's less my Hagen cuz I would say like, you know, shoemaker's the Hagen in my life. But my dad is just like he truly believes the Parnell's like, the, the way, Fredo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he believes that like the way you treat people doesn't matter what business you're in. Right. And you know, my dad believes that like um you know, like a thing he always says, like money is not a motivator. Like people um, want to be respected. Yes. You know, and you can't sort of pay people enough to be able to treat them badly. You just won't get the best work out of them. And unless you're Michael Bay, unless you're Michael Bay, then hell, yes. do whatever you want. He always he always adds to that. Good. Because again, do, you see, do you call him also for advice? Yeah, all the time. And like any time I have a big decision, I call my dad. And right. my dad's. I meant Michael Bay. Oh, Michael Bay. Yeah, oh, sorry. No, but... It's weird because even when you call him on the phone, he uses a megaphone. Right. Yeah, he uses yeah. a megaphone, and you can hear the seventy millimeter film grinding mm-hmm. in the background. No, so what you do. You so you're, you use your dad, and but how? You know, you saw Tina's leadership style. Obviously, yes. you saw Lauren's leadership yes. style. Which I don't imagine yours is too consonant with, really. No, but, like, you know, Lauren has a completely different job. Like, there's a difference in the way you have to be as a number one and a number two. Uh, but you're a number one now. I mean, you're the I number one I will be a now. number one now. You can't even say show. it. You're, like, stumbled on the word. You right. No, it's very Flawlessly, and then saying number one, you almost I did couldn't. not enjoy. But I will, even in these, like, the lead up to this new show, and again, I have not done one episode. Right. I have more respect for Lauren. And I thought I had the most I could have. But you realize, like, oh, that being that last decision, being the last word, takes so much out of you because there's nowhere to hide for Lorne. Right. Um, right. And there's going to be nowhere to hide for me. Well, if you think about it now, I mean, you are one of the co-captains of American comedy now. It's very strange. I mean, you're in that, you're in that spot. Yeah. I mean, you know, so how – so your dad, I get that. But have you, how consciously have you thought about, like, I am a leader of these people, like, I, you know, if you watch Patton a bunch of times over and over again? No, I don't think I'd be a bad, like, the people I always 
You know, the people professionally that I always wanted to be the most like were people like Shoemaker, people like Amy Poehler. They were, you know, leaders by example. They were always kind and respectful to people. And I, you just got the sense that, I mean, I always, with Shoemaker, I just wanted him to be impressed with the way I was approaching right. things. So I think if you create that world, you do right. all right. You get the most out of people. Yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, you are a bo- I mean, you're like the boss of a big business now. It's really weird. Like, we have an office. Like, we have offices. And, like, I, you know, head writer is great. It's a great title. Yeah, that's you a feel different, important. But that's a different thing. You still have totally writer different. in your title, which Absolutely. in Hollywood still translates into head loser. <laughs> I mean, no matter what, you're still head guy who couldn't get the girl in 11th grade. That's true. Although in late night comedy, writer has a little bit more cachet. A li- you think yes. there's a time uh, somewhere? I think t- so. I think that's what you told yeah. yourself. Well, but also we're in New fine. York. We're in New York. There's less movie stars here. Right. No, so that's fine <laughs> when you're on the show. But. Uh, but you are now. Before, as we were walking in here, you said uh, you know you were primed for your Roy Firestone moment. So, which uh, Jerry yeah. Maguire will tell people what that means. But I mean, it must be so. Your dad. I mean, the fact is that now, different than SNL, he must be really proud of you. Yeah, it's great. Have you let yourself kind of like, like, have you let yourself absorb that I, that notion that I've like done this thing now? I've gotten to the top of this mountain. My parents are still here, and they saw this. It's the best. It really is the best. They so deserve. They just deserve to have to be friends with their kids, which they are. They've right. like worked so hard um, at, at that, and that to me is like my favorite thing about spending time with my parents. Is like we've always just been their friends, right? And so to be able to like talk to your friends about this stuff is the best. I remember once you uh, you. Um invited my son Sam uh, and me to come to the show. And that night, Sudeikis' dad happened to be in the mm-hmm. audience. And so when he came out to warm up the crowd, it was you had said his dad was there and we were watching his dad. And I saw it, and that's an incredible thing. But, you know, now your father's going to walk into your studio and your mom, and they're going to see you come out there. So I don't know. I just imagine it's like uh, mind-blowing for you. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I can't think about too much right now because it's really... That's what I'm asking. So because in this point. moment, there's a lot of tipping point moments where I'm like, "Oh boy, here we go." The other day, I was like cleaning up my apartment, and my wife had Pandora on, and Paul Simon's "The Boxer" played. Now, "The Boxer" was the song he played on my first SNL. It was the one right after 9/11. Right. That was the monologue. Was Paul Simon doing "The Boxer"? Right. And I was just like, had to sit down because it's been 12 and a half years. Right. Plus, you know, the, I'm just a, I mean, the, the oh, lyric just, of the journey, York. Of the whole it's thing. It's a journey. It's a song that I thought meant that and now feels like it means this. Yeah, because you know how, I mean, you were the kid, the old box, and yeah. now you're the box. I mean, you're the yeah. guy um, stepping into this incredible ring. But I'm so, I will say the greatest feeling is I don't leave SNL with any unfinished business in a way that I'm so happy about. And I'm so happy I came back and did this first half of the year and got to meet, like, a next generation of people. Because the longer there are people on the show that you worked with, the longer you're connected to it. That makes total sense. And so the fact that, like, you know, uh, you know Kyle Mooney, who I, you know, was there for his first year, like, he's going to be there for a long time. And I'll always be able to go back. And there was a time where our offices were just across the hall from one right. another. And yeah. you were a part now of these new people becoming, yes. taking on the mantle and mm-hmm. doing the show. Yeah. And so you have that sort of pride for them, and you're connected to them. And for fans of the show, I mean, having you on has been great. And I mean, for me, 
you know, I'm a Saturday Night Live uh, fanatic, and to get get to watch you do this, like I'm going to be sad watching it um, on Saturday night. You know, yeah. uh, I'm thrilled for you th- what's happening, but I mean, watching you sign off from uh, Update is going to be. I mean, I remember I, we had lunch right after Wig left. Yeah, and you said like, "Oh, I was surprised by how emotional that got." Yeah, I think you just. Especially with read-through, which was yesterday. So that's where we go through the 40 pieces. And that's really like, that's kind of like the really emotional time. Because it's the last time it's all for us. Right. And that's the moment, certainly with somebody like Wig, somebody like Andy, somebody like Fred. When you realize, like, when you get to spend seven years with them, you know, the audience sees their best 10%. Because that's the stuff that makes the show. But when you get to work there, you see the other 90%. That's the best 10% you guys have. (laughs) That's the best 10%. That's the top 10%. I promise you the next percent you wouldn't like more. I always figured that there was saving the good stuff. Yeah, I figured that there was a 10% that was maybe like the Miles Davis stuff that you couldn't. We got. Well, no. Will Forte would argue he's got a lot of Miles Davis stuff. Because I would argue that Kanish is like the funniest sketch in history. And it never made the show. Yeah, but it, you've seen it. Why have you seen it? I want to have this conversation. Why have you seen Kanish? Because you guys released it from the rehearsal. But why we didn't you air it? We put it online for everyone but to watch it. why didn't you it? air it, young well, man? Well, I can tell you the answer to that question. What's the answer? It was... Because if you haven't seen Kanish, K-A-N-N-I-S-H. He spells it weird. He doesn't spell it like Kanish. Yeah, K-A-N-N-I-S-H. Find this... I have a... I have a teacher for you. I'm going to give you. I will take it. But why wasn't it on? Why didn't it air? Well, it was the Zach Galifianakis show, right? And the whole piece was filmed, I think. I mean, it was mostly on film. Mostly filmed, but there was some sketch. You remember Daryl's house? That show? That was the one that we did live and then re-edited. Yeah. That was like seemed like a similarity of like weird cuts and edits and uh-huh. camera tricks. There was a tonally the two were very similar. And so that and one you had to do live. Because you couldn't uh-huh. put that one online, because it, then it wouldn't make any sense. Like you had the one. So had, you you knew, oh, this will have a life. We knew it had a life. Yeah. Still, though, I would say it is. I watch it all the time. If you, I mean, because of what Hater is so brilliant oh, in that the best. sketch, and so is Zach, and it's just the most meta. That's what I'm saying. Like it's so meta. Yes. It's so commenting on all of it. Right. On like what you guys do on those shows, on what actors are really like. Um, and I just, yeah, I guess I figured there's a lot of that fun. Well, we always talk about a best of dress. Like, oh, that's a great idea. And there's talk, I th- would say it's getting closer to happening. With that said, you'll see that, like, everything has a reason behind it to some degree. Now, it's not really just, like, the whim, Lauren and uh, Lauren's whims? No. Not really. I mean, every now and then, very rarely, there's like a taste issue with Lauren. But I do believe the show is a meritocracy, and Mm -hmm. except for like a few knishes here and there. With that said, I would also like to make the argument that like Knish being online, Knish will have a longer life from being the underdog that was online. Sure. And I I think like if the show could have two Knishes a year that were like the online groundswell. How did you guys do that? It would be a some positive for the show. Sure. No, yes. that that makes sense. But, uh, no, you were saying, so the, the show, you see these people at their best. You see them at their best, but you also see, like, you their best stuff goes on TV, and then you get to see the other 90 bit. You get to see them working it out. You get to see stuff in its early stages. You get to see, like, every Kristen Wiig move out there. It's like, would be like practicing with Jordan. All right. Are you going to, that makes total sense. Are you going to have them, uh, all on your show at certain not all yes. of them, but I mean the will biggest you have Fred problem come on? Oh, oh my god absolutely the biggest problem for us is like not making sure we don't front load them too much because of course you don't want to make it too easy for yourself in the beginning 
and then all of a sudden it's the second month. Oh, and I thought of the same thing with doing this because you know, like. Uh, this is the first time I'm doing uh, a podcast. I've been on a lot of them, but the first time I'm, right. I'm doing this, and obviously because I've been doing what I've been doing for a long time, I have a bunch of pals who are right. would be good to have on. But I can't if I just invite all my friends. You know, eight, eight weeks in, I'm. T- <laughs> The real, and that's fine. The problem is you just, you know, what we really want to make sure we do with the show is like in that first week, you want to see, you want to have people you know, people you've never met, people. Yeah, right. You, know, you want to have people that are well, on that you're not familiar with them at all. Well, uh, I'm sure the network will love that, by the way. That yeah. must be what they're telling you. Right? right. They're saying the more obscure, put George Saunders on. They probably want right. you to book Saunders episode one. It'll be so interesting. I will say. you're going to do authors, right? Yes. And I will say at this point. And you never know if it'll change. Like, we have had no problems from the network at all. So I'm a, a late night. Uh, I, I, read, I read the Bill Carter books. Bill Carter over, books are great. And over again, um, Bill, uh, obviously, Seth said that so that you'll be kind. And, and I that. always, I know Bill. He moderated the 92nd Street Y panel I did last year right before I got this gig. And I think he was kind of smelling out that I would maybe get this gig. Right. But I always say to Carter... I, my goal in life is to be your most boring chapter. That's perfect. But yeah. so you know that, I mean, obviously between you and, and, and Jimmy and Jimmy, it's like all nice guys now. They're not. Right. They're this, you know, it used to be that uh, these guys, I mean, the sort of defining characteristic beyond them being smart was just how cruel they could be. And none of right. that is there for you guys. But when you think about what you want the show to represent, to be, I mean, what do you. What do you think that is? I know you said it's just what you are, just right. Seth Myers, but you don't want it to be just like huge celebrities all the time. No, definitely not. You know, as far as the booking goes, you know, I want people from all different kinds of worlds. The one thing I don't know about myself is how good an interviewer, interviewer I'll be. But, like, to be able to get interesting conversations out of people would be something I'd be really proud of if I could reach that point. And it would be fun to have I'm authors sure you or, you know, tastemakers, uh, you know, athletes. You know, for me, like, I think most athletes you see on late night shows are recent champions. Right. Uh, you know, for me, I would love to have people on. Marty Reisman, the old ping pong champion. Great. That's yeah. sort of who you want. <laughs> the guy was a demon with the flat, pa- you know, the old paddles before the padded paddles. Yeah, that was his. Like... I, can, I might be able to find him for you. Okay, good. Because so, when you say athlete, I think old right. athlete. Did, think... He, did the new paddles uh, hurt him when it went to the new paddles? Did his game change? Let me tell you something. It destroyed him. Is that like Douglas Fairbanks? Who was the one no, that went from talkies? That no, right. Up? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, the art, but no. Yeah, he refused because, and I'll tell you why. Because, and uh, hey, Simmons, uh, this is sports content for you on uh, the Grantland. Um, the old paddles, the masters could hear the difference between the flat paddles, uh, slice and topspin. Wow. And so they would hear when a guy hit a slice. And, and that's why guys would stomp like pro wrestlers when they would hit the slice so you couldn't hear it. The swings would look similar, but Reisman was a champ, and he could recognize the slice. And the first time he played against the guy with the big padded paddle, he couldn't hear it, and he got destroyed. You know, he lost wow. 21 to 5, and that was it. I think he's still drinking yeah. on the Bowery. Yeah, we, can find now, we can find him. I think he's, all right, so but I have a couple of late-night uh, questions for you. First, what do you think it is? Like, I'm in show business, right? But, I mean, I was born in New York City to a cigar-smoking Jewish music publisher father. Like, I was going to be in show business. Um, But what do you think it is about New Hampshire and Indiana and Nebraska that sets, like, someone up to be able to be someone who's uh, talking to the the country? Like, yeah, I don't know, really. I mean, my path is so interesting because, you know, 
my mother's a New Englander. My dad's from Pittsburgh. They met at Northwestern in the Midwest. Right. I end up going to Northwestern in the right. Midwest. So I get my comedy education is more Midwestern than New England. Okay. Um, then I, you know, I moved to Amsterdam of all places. I spent sure. two years, which was really interesting because when you are performing for people, really intelligent people who have English as a second language, you learn to like, I feel like it helped you comb out all those like crutches of like pop culture reference or uh, the night that I quit doing stand up. I started doing I only did stand up a year and a half when I was seven years ago because I'd always promised myself I'd do it and I ended up being able to do it and I passed and did these clubs but the night that I finally was like uh, I'm done with this nine people all from Denmark in the crowd that's all the crowd was only Danish people (laughs) and all my jokes were pop and they looked at me with not only an uncomfortable it was like not only did they not understand I felt like even if I told it to them in their language they wouldn't understand it and it was just you know, yeah. I mean, you know, it was called flop sweat and death, and I just thought the nine Danes represented my comedy future, and I <laughs> just let myself out of the club into the cold air. So you learned from doing that. I did, but you know what? Of course, and the other thing, you know, I learned from Seinfeld being on television, right. and I learned from Monty Python on public television, and I learned probably more than anywhere else. I learned from watching SNL. Right. Like, I learned to do SNL from watching SNL. Like, my education of the show didn't start when I was 27 and I had my first day. It started when I was, like, 12 and my dad let us stay up late to watch it. Right. So, you know, part of it is I know, like, people often put a lot in where you're from and, and you where don't. you come from. No, and because of, like, how my life moved around, like, I don't – I've never quite – I've always felt like, you know, I, I'm not quite a New Englander. I'm not quite Midwestern. I'm not quite a New Yorker, even though I want to, you know, die here. You've been here for a long time. I've been here a long time, but, like, you know, you hang out with you, and I'm like, oh, I'm not a New Yorker. Right. No. (laughs) Yeah. I met your dad, by the way. Did I tell you that? No. Oh, at the – no, but they told me. Well, my little sister, Jennifer Hutt, who, you know, hosts uh, the Dr. Drew show with Dr. Drew, she's the biggest Seth Meyers fan in the world, so she dragged my dad over to you, I imagine. I said I was a big fan of his son, and someone was like, for everything he's accomplished – the only thing Seth has to say is he's a fan. That's perfect. <laughs> okay, so I have a couple more late night questions, and I know you have to go soon. But um, one is you always hear when people talk about why they chose Jay over Dave, uh, they always talk about how great he was with the affiliates. Right. Uh, he's so great working the affiliates. So how much of your job is working the affiliates? Well, certainly in pre-launch, we've done these affiliate visits. So what like, is it? I just picture guys with pinky rings who look like Tony Soprano. God, not at that at all. Like, what is you it? Kind what of, is it? You know, they're incredibly tightly scheduled, but like the we did like we would do like Nashville and Indianapolis in a day, then the next day like Minneapolis and Chicago. And you slide in them hundreds? Like what do no, you, you what just is go in? Me? Like basically you go to the, the local NBC station, yeah. you sit down with like their evening news anchors, they interview you. Then let's say you're in Minneapolis, those guys go out and then like oh Claire comes in. And then, like, Milwaukee comes in. So, like, the sort of outer-lying ones that can drive there all oh, come in. So you're not dealing – like, I thought it was also, like, um, when the guys who program those – have you not had to, like, do, like, those – like, meet the guys who run those stations or program They're them, glad there, hand them? They're all but it's really it – is, it is, like – I was saying it's, like, running for – it's, like, getting elected and then running for office. Right. That's – okay. So this is fa- really yeah. interesting to people that – because why are these stations – why is it important? Because people, I think, might, might believe the networks can just say, put this show on at 1230 at night. But what's the truth? Well – I don't know the full politics of it, right. but 
and you certainly, I certainly have heard that, you know, no one is not going to put the show on TV. Right. But at some point, a station could have the autonomy to decide at 1230, we're going to put something else on. So you certainly want them to be rooting for you. I will say going around to the affiliates right now, and obviously they're going to say stuff like this to me because why would they say otherwise? But I do think they seem really excited about the demographics of late night right now. Um the fact that, like, with Jimmy and I, it, it seems younger. With that said, like... It you is know, younger. They, it is younger. Across the board, like, they were all huge fans of Jay as well. So, but I think they they seem to be hopeful for the fact that this might be a thing that is uh, stable for a long time. Oh, no, it's... I mean, it is a great thing. I think we're all... I mean, I'm certainly really excited about this idea. I think the two of you complement each other so well. You're so different as performers. Yes, and it's... Following Jimmy is a real gift with starting this job because I think he's going to do great. And the reality is so much of my success is based on the lead-in. And, you know, the fact that you guys are both in New York is great for you because you can very slowly poison someone over time. That's what they say. I'm saying so the cafe, in other words, you can, the cafeteria, if you get to the right lunchroom worker. Right. All you have to do, it doesn't have to be like uh, over no. a long, it can be, you know, you don't have to do it right away. Use you can Russian stuff. Well, it's like yeah. Iocane powder from the Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. ricin. Yes. But yes, ricin goes too quickly, you'd be a suspect immediately. That's right, right. You have to do a thing where just the illness builds up over time, it starts as gout, yep. one or two days he can't come in, it's late, and then bang! This is all, this is a really good plan. Right? I'm this just saying, really it seems plan. to me... Right, whereas if he was in L.A., it would be so... L.A., it's harder. Then you got to fly with poison. <laughs> you got you to gotta, you gotta hire... Right. Then you're hiring assassins. Mm. And it's, I think, much greater likelihood of getting caught. Because, you know, it seems like in the movies when they hire assassins, it's great. But in real life, not so great. No. Assassins almost always want the second payment. <laughs> They, it was always always went harder. They always had more expenses than they thought. Yeah, it's just like in real life, though. The assassin is just some guy who can't, you know, couldn't get a job, and he knows yeah. another guy with a gun, and he's as likely to just kill you instead. Which is why this thing, New York, very easy. easy, a nudge into traffic. Yeah, we work in a building with elevator shafts. Right. I mean, yeah. how how I'm much easier? Saying, by be? the way, I'm not saying you confide in any of this to me privately. Right. I'm just I'm just saying. So. um you know, when people do talk about, obviously, you're not a guy who's going to do anything like that and you're going to support uh, Jimmy. You, I mean, I think you know that in many ways, I was trying to think about this. I mean, you are, people don't have opposites, but I think that you are the opposite of Chevy Chase. Oh, interesting. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I think you too, because you're right, your polarity, you were both at that chair. Yes. Uh, in that position. But I remember watching the first episode of his late night show mm -hmm. and i had a comedian friend come over to the house and if anyone can find a tape of this just it is, real quick did you what was your expectation going into that night that it was going to be a disaster gotcha okay because i don't quite remember what people's expectations were. i remember the outcome more than the expectation no the, the expectation was this is what i was gonna say the moment it started and he was uh, he bombed in a way that people don't bomb. I mean, mm -hmm. it was um, like a stellar, staggering achievement of, you could tell, no thought given to how he wanted to do the show, no thought to how he wanted to interview, no thought to who he was as a late night host. But the great thing was this. The comedian I was with, and this was before cell phones, uh, right? Because that show, maybe there were just cell phones. Yeah, but I think, yeah, only in your car and like as big as a shoe. Right. He picked up my phone, my ha like my phone, 
and he started calling other comedians who were all at their homes and bars watching. And everybody was celebrating. You could hear it in the Bronx like the Yankees won the championship. <laughs> everybody <laughs> was celebrating the fact that Chevy was tanking. And I really believe, Seth, that because people love you so much, that it's the exact opposite. That, you know, as he is famously a miserable, horrible person. And, and the fact that you're not even saying he's not when everyone knows who you are is... <laughs> It just says everything, uh, but you are known, and, and 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 I know you are. I know you well enough to know that you are genuinely as as good a dude as as you come across. But how conscious is it to you that like I'm in this position in life, and I'm going to, I'm gonna doggedly stick to being kind. Oh well, you, that has not. I mean, I will say this is really important to say. Like, it's not like I work really hard to be kind. Like, I don't, I'm not conscious of trying to be kind. It's very nice when people say that about me, but I'm not very good at being unkind. Like, right. that doesn't come Your naturally. default position is to be kind. Yeah. I would think. I hope. But, uh, you know, it's really exciting to have a new staff of people and to get a start with people where you just want to build a atmosphere at the show where everybody kind of realizes that that's important. Like, So how do you communicate that? I think it's just, you know, again, like when you get to be, uh, when you have your name on the door, I think if you're nice to people, like who would have any reason to be unkind if... Have you ever fired anyone? Yeah, I have. It's the worst. <laughs> Did you do it like smiling? No, I mean, you've had to, I've had to do it with writers. Right. And... Um, but they might have known. Writers always figure they're... I mean, right? Well, you know, I will say that, like, the sort of process you do is is um, you kind of have the agent let them, give them a heads up. Right. I, I think you want to give people the... Oh, the... Di right. So you are... See, now, I got to say, that is you working in a good way. I think when I said, how do you work on being kind, you maybe took that as, like, that it's calculated. I mean more that... You're aware that the impact of your actions and, and words is significant, so you take a beat to make sure that you handle yourself in the, the right way, which not everybody in show business does. In fact, most people in show business don't. Um, I think that's true. I think I'm... Uh... I can, like, over... I, yeah, I would be, I would I'd be a little hard on myself if I felt like I was uh, loose or careless with somebody else's emotion, especially, you know, at a tough time like that. Right. Um, do you have any, as we finish up here, just a couple more things, any tips for me on, on interviewing? You're doing a good job. I was sort of taking tips from you as I went. Okay, good. Design, um, this is very fun that you're coming to do my one of my test shows. You're oh, yeah, I am. I'm doing yeah. your test show. But nobody's going to see that, so it's well, not like... Well, if it's good tape, you know, feel free to use it. Okay, that's great. That's yourself. fun. And, you know, when they send you the note to come be a uh, guest in the test show, they go, um, and, of course, we're planning on booking you when the real show comes. But if you're me, you know <laughs> that's not even... There's no part of that statement. I really statement. hope it works out. There's no part back. of that statement that's true, and that's fine. Just a couple more things. Um, two candidates for a job, a writer's job, are exactly the same. Okay. They're, they're exactly the same. Their material makes you laugh exactly in the same way. One is Harvard. One's Northwestern. Who do you hire? Oh, that's really funny. The thing is, and this is really important, of course, when I went to Northwestern, there were lots of people there I didn't like. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's that thing yeah. of, like, you know, I knew more jerks in my hometown than I know anywhere else just because I grew up in my hometown. Right. I also knew great people. 
despite that, I hire Northwestern. You do, right? Yeah. Northwestern all the time. <laughs> Not North- all the time. No, yeah, I would because rotate. people always talk about the, you know, uh, the Harvard thing, and yeah. I think that is definitely uh, true. But um, I've noticed that Northwestern, because I, I got into Tufts and Northwestern, and I chose Tufts, and right. I regretted it almost instantly. Yeah. Now I have fondness for that place, but I... I think I look at the way Northwestern uh, people are around one another, yeah. and it really does feel like sort of a very Midwestern, clean, nice version of Skull and Bones. Yes. With that said, I mean, the, the thing that people always forget about Harvard is it's not – the reason so many Harvard people get jobs is the lampoon. Like, that's the – there is a place at Harvard where they're publishing a comedy magazine. Yes. All these people are standing they, – they, they spend all their time together getting better – they just have a four-year head start. This is not about. No, I like, know that that's true. I know that. No, my my son is going there next. He's oh, going to be a freshman there. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah, so, but I've been thinking about a lot of this stuff because, like, you know, I wasn't a good student. Like, yeah. and my son has, you know, been writing for a long time and crazy good at this. I, uh, but, you know, you wonder sort of like what is it about that place and how does that happen? Right. But you choose Northwestern, so I'm going to tell him to write to uh, Jimmy if you want. I don't, he's not going to. He doesn't want to do any of that, but um, <laughs> it's still interesting to me. All right, just a couple more things. Um, you know that thing in J.D. Salinger's book about uh, you just need to be entertaining so that uh, you know he his character thinks of the the fat lady on the porch listening right. to the radio. Yeah. That's sort of his idea of the platonic audience member. Mm-hmm. Who do you think of? Who's in? What's in your head? Who you want to entertain? You know, I just want it to work with the audience. Like, that's where I simply think about it. But I will say, one of the great things about living in New York City is how many people you realize watch SNL. Like, I hope I'm so lucky with Late Night. But, like, you can have, you know, everyone from, you know, uh, your doorman to the taxi driver to an old Jewish woman on the street. Like, all walks of life watch the show and that is really the triumph of Lauren Michaels is he created this thing that stuck around long enough that it's like multi-generational and I just hope that the new show that late night if I could be walking down the street five years from now and have that same sort of spectrum of people um, be complimentary I'll be really happy one thing you missed out on with regards to that is that uh, you know if you had gotten if this goes well you get the key to the city mm-hmm. but don't you think like under Bloomberg it would have been an actual gold it would have been key, nice. yeah. Whereas under Blasio, it's probably a bowl of quinoa. Right. So I think they show you. Here's the key. a beautiful, warm bowl they show of quinoa. You the key and then they go, but we're going to we're going to give the key to a bunch of we're going to cut up the key and just give it to a whole bunch of other people. Is <laughs> probably what they think. Um, all right, last question for you. Um, I I asked my friend Andrew Ross Sorkin, who you know hosts yeah, sure. Squawk Box and writes thing, because I figured I'm not a real interviewer, so yes. I said to Sorkin. All right, give me three good questions, like what a professional would ask. Got it. So you can answer these really Great. quickly. One of them I think you, you won't answer, but uh, his first one was, because this is a real newsman's question, what do you think Conan's mistake was with the Tonight oh, Show? Oh, I, I, you know, I don't know if, like, certainly when you're about to embark on something like this, I don't want to go back. Really? And, you don't want to look at I don't want to say Because, again, like... You don't want to perform that autopsy? I'm more worried about any mistakes I might make. Than... Okay, well, we'll ask that question to the next guy about mm-hmm. you. And then, uh, who do you think was the best uh, update host? Um, Who are your favorite? You know, best is a weird thing. Your favorites. This is another Andrew Ross Sorkin question. I think it has so much to do with, like, when you watch them. Dennis was who was my first guy. he was incredible. And he was great. And I think he made it modern. He modernized it. Yes. And when Lauren came back, Lauren needed to come back with a strong update host. So I have a a really special place in my heart for uh, Dennis. And then I think, you know, Norm completely... No one's made it more their own Uh than Norm. And they're still really fun to go back... And watch, because there's been nothing like it uh, before or since. 
Yeah, Norm, so different. But I mean, I guess Dennis, for, for you, showed you that um, a cerebral, like you could be cerebral yes. and really cerebral in that job. It wasn't even that it made me want to be, it made me want to get those jokes. Right. Oh, that's great. Me too. I, yeah. I get that. Um, and you know, he thinks, I mean, you know, I, I met him and he was like, that Myers kid is really good. Yeah, he loves you. Thank you. Great. From the, he's from the bird. The last uh, Andrew Sorkin question is do you think people have to be born funny? Or do you think that you can grind it and become funny? I think you have to have some innate talent. I don't think, I think it's like anything. I think it's a, you have to be born with some amount of funny. Yeah. So, okay. So this moment in your life now, um, Time Magazine, the the whole thing, uh, over, how does it, if you had to sort of like define how it, how it really feels to you, is it mostly exciting, mostly scary, a mix? Like what? What is it? What does it feel like? Um, you know, I got married in September. I turned 40 in December. I'm starting this job in February. I'm saying goodbye to a job I've been on for 12 and a half years. I go back and forth. I'm like 50-50, like nervous and excited. But when I kind of look back over this last year and this next year that's coming up, I can't imagine anyone could ask to be any luckier than I have been and am about to be. So that's kind of what I feel more than anything else. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm so happy for you. And thank you so much for doing this and being my uh, first guest on, on the moment. Um, thank all of you for listening. And uh, you can find me. I'm Brian Koppelman on Twitter if you want me. Seth is Seth uh, underscore Myers. No, now it's no, just Seth Myers. Just Seth Myers uh, on Twitter. And thank you and see you next time. All right, buddy. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, Subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.